Hey, hell, hell, my friends. Welcome to the Wednesday Vibrant. We have a special conversation for you tonight. In my opinion, this will be special because it's like the meeting of two minds that really should have met a long time ago. And so here's the intention, okay? Everybody knows Elsie King. Everybody knows Topher. But Topher and Elsie King don't know each other. <laughs> so this is what we're going to watch happen. Literally, sparks are going to fly. I'm going to send them off talking to each other about electricity. Basically, this is inspired from uh, back in September when the Bear Taria Festival happened. Topher here gave an awesome talk about like geometry and phi and electricity and cavitation and all of these wild things relating to like the dynamic, the fluid dynamics of what is current and how all that works. And we've gotten little snippets of it from him, you know. Here and there, he's just always ladling good stuff, but <laughs> this is maybe going to be more of a structured, not structured in like a rigid way, but I don't think he made a PowerPoint or anything. But Topher is going to lead us through some of the highlights or do his best to sort of recreate that talk for us. And then we're going to riff on it. And uh, first, I think, though, what would be great is to let Lucas and Topher introduce themselves to each other and, and, and their work to each other so that, you know, we can get this ball off on the right foot. Okay, go. Yeah, you, you first, Lucas. <laughs> Very okay, so you. it was a um, probably five years ago now that I've been doing sort of YouTube stuff, um, and basically what I was trying to do was find out the flat Earth model based on electricity, I guess, and I sort of fell into that really. Um, and what I was doing was applying uh, the galvanic cell and electrolysis to how the sun and moon and all that operate. And so seeing that the oceans are an electrolyte, um, the earth is a salt bridge and the moon is a anode and the sun is a cathode. And so it was basically my research into all that and how that, and then it just gave a basic understanding of electricity and all these different things and how it all sort of fits together into one sort of complete unit. Um, so that was, that was my, uh, <laughs> claim to fame, I guess, on YouTube. And then, um, then I do sort of other stuff relating to calendars and occult sort of stuff as well on the side. Yeah, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff in terms on the side. (laughs) Synodic periods and great gematria breakdowns. I mean, there's a wide range of things that you have a lot of awesome research and expertise in. So things that Topher is very, very uh, aligned with in his own perspectives. But Topher, what do you do, buddy? Oh, I got you muted. Okay, start over. (laughs) I do a few things. Uh, I always back into electricity. I just want to be clear about that. Um, I've been a body worker professionally for 23 years. I was trained in polarity therapy, which is essentially, it's really just Ayurvedic massage that's rebranded. And a lot of that has a lot to do with how the negative, there you go. Exactly. Yep. Dr. Randolph Stone. I went to his institute in Austin, Texas. So, um, yeah, Dr. Stone's work was brilliant for me because I grew up in a family of 
well, no one was professional massaging, but a lot of healers in my family. So I grew up with always having the phenomenology of touch. And uh, I would get really sick when I was in Florida massaging people. And I lived in an ashram and I ended up moving to Costa Rica and my energetics completely flipped when I moved to Costa Rica because I started doing earth building. And I noticed that my energetics would completely ground out because I was literally building with earth. (laughs) I'd build super dobe buildings and build cob buildings, uh, which we call bereke. And so I would have my feet stomping clay into coconut fiber a couple hours a day, or I'd be like compacting, you know, a, a rammed earth house. And I found that I could massage eight, well, six to eight people a day and never get the the sickness that I got in Florida. And I really started to look into this whole notion of grounding And at the same time, I was noticing a lot of these earth bag houses look like these massive coils to me, like they're literally like a beehive coil. And I was like, huh, I've I've seen earthen batteries like this. Like if I was just to connect each, you know, um, cylinder, the, the galvanized metal that we have along every five inches, if I was just to connect that, you know, put the ground in the ground and then have you know, my, uh, my positive up 20 feet above the ground, I could, I could derive a current. And I just saw it one day. I was like, huh, this is the way structures are supposed to be. Structures are supposed to give the the energy that's needed for, for the structure. It shouldn't be coming from somewhere else. It doesn't need to. So, um, and at the same time, I was endeavoring to learn about orgone and a friend of mine. I've been talking to Chance a lot about this guy. He developed. Have you ever you're, you're from Australia, right? LC King. Yeah, that's correct. Did you ever hear of the Joe cell? Uh, yes, I've heard of it, but you'll have to remind me what it is. So the Joe cell was essentially a cylinder within a cylinder within a cylinder that was stainless steel, and they would run a 12-volt charge at a certain frequency to the cathode and the anode of the cell, and it would produce orgone. And the orgone, they would tap to the engine, yep, and I remember now. The, yep. the engines, you could have an engine you know, run very efficiently, let's just say. <laughs> and it wasn't like it wasn't like pumping hydrogen into or Brown's gas into the into the air intake. So I was working with this guy that invented this system and um got really into water and Is what, this when the black helicopter showed up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we got two of these cells in resonance because we figured out to get any of this stuff to work, they're like tuning forks, which Chance would love. You have to get everything in a resonant, coherent pattern. So we were using function generators and um, we were using, I don't know the technical name of it. It's an oscillating generator that changes the oscillation rate to get get us to get the water to uh, create orgone. And uh, we got it to work <laughs> in the middle of uh, Palm Beach County, Florida, and we got visited the next day. Well, within six hours, we were visited by uh, black whoop whoop choppers. Um, but 
the whole thing that I've been working on is like I got into domes, I got into water, structuring water. I got into all these things for from like a health and prosperity perspective. And I've been working on every, every one of those things since then. So I, I guess I've been in that world now for 14, 15 years now. So that that's what I've been up to. Yeah, so <laughs> all right, Lucas, you got any questions? <laughs> Come on. No, no <laughs> I'm just sort of sitting back enjoying this, um well, enjoying well, what you're telling us. So one really cool thing, Lucas, because you brought up the flat earth thing. So I got into the work of this this Dr. Floyd suite when I was trying to structure water for my cells and for my body. Because I really I, I had a couple of water uh, structuring inventions that I worked on for quite a while. And uh, Floyd Sweet, he talked about how the, the model of magnetics is completely wrong. Like the model of where like you have a North Pole and a South Pole on a magnet. That's not actually the magnetic field. Like when you put a, a magnet with iron filings and you see that toroid. That's just actually lots of miniature magnets connected together. That's actually not showing you a true magnetic field. That's showing you a magnetic field of magnets. So he was the first person in the 80s to actually be able to map a true magnetic field. And a magnetic field, it's very yin-yang. You have both a positive and a negative on the north, and you have both a positive and a negative on the south. And depending on the shape of the magnet, whether it was a bar magnet or it was a cylindrical magnet or it was a ring magnet, all created these different pockets of vortexes that would come off of it. And you'd have one dominant one, but you'd also have varying weaker ones. And so when I first, uh, when David Weiss first like contacted me, To, to try and figure out whether or not the flat earth was true. Um, they were talking about the ring. And I was like, I've been studying ring magnets. I've been trying to order very, very expensive ring magnets for my water purifier. And when and you I were was in like, India, if I'm not mistaken, that was pretty much just common knowledge that we don't live on a, a ball, right? Uh, when I was in India, I wasn't talking to anybody that was conscious. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in India, the ashram that I was in was a completely, uh, they were all Vedanta Advaita and they didn't want any thinking to happen. So I didn't really fit in because I asked a lot of questions. Maybe somebody else told me that about India. I think that was Mario. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's Mario. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's mixing up my homies. Yeah, no, I I was in India in 03, 04, and 05. So that was way before I was conscious to the flat earth thing. I I didn't start to have like a a thing with the flat earth until I read a book called Dark Mission from the uh, NASA guy, Richard Hoagland, where he showed all how all the photos were fake. And even then, I still thought we went. It wasn't until I actually had a neighbor in Costa Rica that was the JPL uh, security chief, like their system security chief. 
And I was all into aliens. I believed all that stuff. <laughs> and I would talk to him. I'd be like, come on, tell, tell me about the aliens. Tell me about this, that, and the other. And he wouldn't tell me anything until I got high with him once. And then he gave me homework. He's like, Gardner, he goes, find a picture of the sun from space in the visible light spectrum. I'm like, easy peasy, Japanesey, I'm doing it. And when I was in Costa Rica at the time, nobody had internet. You had to go to town for internet. And so every time I go to town, which was once a week, I'd go to an internet cafe and I'd be like, you know, sun, visible light spectrum from space. And this was 2007. I darned if I couldn't find it. And I kept asking people to try and find a picture of the sun in the visible light spectrum from space. And that's all he ever said to me. And the second thing he said, he actually said one other thing. He said, everything that you see from space is animated. And then he said, we're, and he said, my office was down the street from Disney. And he told me this in 2007. So it only took me eight years to put it together. <laughs> so in, in 2015, when uh, David Weiss was like, NASA Sophia rents out their motion capture green screen studio to Hollywood all the time for Hollywood movies. Absolutely. It's hilarious. So um, Weiss, Weiss was like, Weiss and Sophia Smallstorm were like, hey, check this out, the, you know, grind on it and see what you can think of. And I was heartbroken. Because the second I I saw the ice ring, what what's considered the perimeter, I instantly knew that everything I'd been studying about ring magnetics was true. Because in ring magnetics, if you have a ring magnet and it's called uh, radially centered, meaning when they actually center the ring, like if this is the ring, if I actually put it like this. When they center it, they send the charge from the outside to the inside. So the outside, the entire outside is south. And then every point, through, let's just say 360 points, even though it's infinite. Well, let's just say 360 points, you have the north pressing to the center. Well, that creates a really cool thing in magnetics. It's called scalar north. So if you turn the ring like this and you have all the north pointing in, it creates a plasma charge, a scalar north that's equal. Well, it all depends on the radius of the of the ring of the south, but it creates scalar north here. That's freaking Polaris. Yeah. I instantly yeah, that, you're explaining a monad. It's what it is. Uh, or it's uh, you see it in the magnetron as well, don't you? That same sort of um that's used in microwaves, that same ring. Oh, I don't even know. Very powerful. I, yeah. That, that's really cool. But I knew it just from Floyd Sweet's work. I was like, because my whole thing was my water purifier was putting water right through the scalar north. You know, sending it through a phase conjugate magnet array through scalar north. I was like, I'm going to reinvent the wheel. But um, so... Yeah, that that to me, I was like, holy shit, this is true. So I had to like, you know, within a couple of weeks, like weep and, and, and uh, mourn the loss of space. Because <laughs> at the time I thought, you know, that I was programmed to have my hope in space, you know, so. Ever since Star Wars, yeah. just yep. want to go on a Millennium Falcon. 
I was more I was a Star Trek man. guy. I have I have to admit, like back in the day, like Star Trek for me was was much more my jam. It seems like maybe the more intellectual thing. <laughs> I never actually got into it enough, so I don't know. But yeah, Star Wars, like the the more I'm able to analyze that, the more I see it's just like so uh, base and juvenile. <laughs> yeah, and like hyper hyper trauma based mind control in terms of the the plot of that. So, but that's a tangent. Yeah, you yeah. know one thing to one thing to point out is the, the correspondence of the Star Wars story and the government agenda known as Star Wars. You know, for anybody mm-hmm. who ever doubts that Hollywood and government is not hand in hand, it goes way further back than that. But that's just a good example. Well, so I, I want to talk about oh, well with your description of the ring magnet and how that applies to Polaris. I'd like to hear more about that. The this particular theory of magnetism or what can be demonstrated with magnetism, how that in a micro to macro sense can tell us more about the realm, you know, or at least give us the ability to make some educated hypotheses about the larger structure. Well, it's, it's really cool. Did you ever come across John Bedini's work? No. So John Bedini, he was a, you you all have heard of Marantz amplifiers, right? No. Have you heard of the brand Marantz? Oh my God. <laughs> so, <laughs> like so guitar amps. Guitar amps, but they were really audiophile, very high end amplifiers in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then when everything started to go digital, they had, you know, their market share dropped. But but they got really popular because people loved the warmth of the sound that their amplifiers would make. And this is a this is a side tangent. John Bedini was their competition in the 70s and 80s, and he was making crystal amplifiers. And so he did all these bespoke crystal amplifiers where instead of using vacuum tubes, and transistors, he would, you know, use the piezoelectric nature of different crystals to actually be what tuned his amplifiers. Absolutely out of this world, brilliant man. Well, I studied, I took probably four of his online courses. I bought like every single device that that uh, his his company made. I made his schoolgirl perpetual motion machine and his whole thing was like we use the the absolute bs side of electrical circuits every electrical circuit that that we make terminates on itself so it's always creating a short and he was very much like tesla in the sense that tesla was very open to open circuits so his his positive and his negative rarely touched in a lot of his open circuits where he would have a spark gap and he would create the the what I call electrical cavitation. Yay, Emily. Um, and John Bedini was doing the same thing. And he was after he was scared into submission, he essentially just did battery reclamation things. So you're talking about the uh, earth as an electrolyte, like the salt water and the salt bridge. 
he was so into this technology of being able to recondition any battery that has an electrolyte. And what he would show is in a regular charging circuit of charging a battery, you're just hitting the battery with amps, like full amps. And that creates a phase shift in the electrolyte where the electrolyte has can only go in that direction. And if it doesn't get that consistent pulse, the electrolyte, I don't know all the terminology, the electrolyte just becomes less and less and less efficient and it drops its capacity to carry a charge. And he showed where nature doesn't do it that way. The way nature does it is nature uses what's known as um, a side band pulse. So it's a lot like the way if you're going to shock a metal into um, into being a magnet, you know, if you're going to take a, a bar of neodymium and shock it and traumatize it, <laughs> it makes a magnet. But yeah, now you have a magnet and it can do work in its way, but there's another way that you could coax that to do the same amount of work where there's an there's an over unity aspect to it. And this is with the sideband harmonics. This is where musical stuff comes into it that I'm an absolute novice at. And he would just find the frequency ranges in which instead of shocking the electrolyte so terribly with huge amps, he was like Tesla, where he would use voltage at certain frequencies and then use the harmonics off that to recondition the electrolytes and the plates within the electrolytes. And he was absolutely brilliant. He died, I think he died like six years ago. But his work for with our charge out of this world, but what he showed very simply where I would say his biggest claim to fame in the world, which is kind of hilarious, was he trained, I think it was his neighbor's daughter. He showed her how to make a perpetual motion machine by using Scalar North. And so what he did in the, in the school girl, they call it the school, the school girl, the SG um, bicycle wheel project, something like that. And all you do is you force two Norths together. So you force two Norths so that they're going like this. And we've all done that where you push two North, you know, magnets together, the poles, and you get them really close. You can even phase lock them if you want. And just right above that is, is this, this constant pulse that's 40 times stronger than the North pole itself. And then if you have a secondary magnet on a wheel, if you just, it's technically not free energy because you, you have to have something to start the motion. So let's just say your intention. <laughs> if you start the motion on, on, the, on the wheel, the wheel will just spin indefinitely. And not only will it spin indefinitely, it will charge a battery at the same time. That's actually really simple when you think it, about it. <laughs> And that was his thing. All these guys say the same thing, whether it's Keeley, whether it's Tesla, whether it, whether it's uh, Bedini, whether it's Bearden, everyone I've ever studied. It's super simple. Like I am not an electrical engineer. I'm not, <laughs> it like I look at an electrical schematic for houses and I just like hand it off to my electrician. I'm like, I don't want to see that. Like, 
I've, I've soldered engines and things like that for remote control cars and planes and stuff like that. Like I have a very remedial uh, knowledge from a technical perspective, but I've tinkered enough to know that what they're saying is true. And I'm a huge fan of pneumatics and uh, because I, I look at the world, even the electrical world, much more like it's about pressure gradients. It's it's all these electrical pressure gradients and what we call electricity. Like I don't see in, in current, the more current parlance, the guy that I love listening to is uh, Kenneth Wheeler. He has the, the, the uh, YouTube channel, Theoria Apophasis. Um, He puts it very, very similar to the way I see it, but he's so much more advanced than I am. Um, like Tesla said, all light is, is it's a perturbance in the ether. And I'm, I'm an ether guy. Like, I think ether is a real thing. (laughs) And, uh, I'm definitely not in the modern physics world. I'm not an atomist, but I feel like much more akin to the ether physicists of yore. Yeah, I'm sort of. Oh, always sort of sitting in two worlds with that sort of thing, um, especially when I just look at the upper atmosphere, what they would call an ether, um, as a low-pressure system. And so, as soon as you have that low-pressure dynamics, um, it really does change how the conductivity of things, the pr- pressure mediation, as you say, all those sort of things start to play a, um, a significant role because you're reducing the pr- pressure. And this is where you get into sort of um, plasma stuff as well, um, where you're able to create plasmas because you basically need three things. You need low pressure, you need heat, and you need a magnetic field. And so those sort of things are, um, you know, start to be included. And that ether is is somewhat like um, the absence of pressure in a sense. So that's that's how some of the ways I view it, but there's also this um, another way of viewing ether in a sense as a etheric electrolyte, and that's what I sort of um, propose that that is up above us is basically a low pressure electrolyte, um, an electrolyte as a gas. Mm. So um, that's where I get these sort of these ideas that you're actually tapping into or these other guys that are using ether as such are sort of tapping into that um, or able to utilize the the natural energy that is around us basically. Yeah. Ken Wheeler puts it very simply and I really love his terminology. He calls this, this plane that we live on. He he won't ever just come out and say we live on a plane, but when he has slipped a little bit, he's like, we live on the plane of inertia. And as a body worker, that makes so much sense sense to me, especially as an athlete. Because like, whenever I've had to work through my own things, or whenever I've had to work through somebody's myo, myofascia, or when I'm in the presence of somebody that's carrying something heavy, it's a density, it's inertia. It, it It is an actual inertia and like the, the lighter states of consciousness that I've been in, there's less inertia. There's much higher momentum and much lower inertia. And so I, I really do think that what we consider materialism as the dielectric 
uh, inertial plane. Like we are literally on our, our heart chakra is the horizon. And that to us, we're the axis mundi of our experience. So as yep. the axis mundi of our experience, the, the inertial plane goes right through our heart. And that is like the center. That is the core of, of the condensate of spirit. Like if spirit's coming down and up, it condensates uh, along that horizontal dielectric inertial plane. So that's sort of the model of my cosmology at the moment. Well, yeah, we're very similar in that respect because I see the earth as um, sort of the neutral ground as well. Right. Um, when you look at a um, the galvanic cell and see the, the earth as a salt bridge, then it is basically got um, – fluids moving through it say like magma and um the the aquifers and things like that and they're they're the electrolytes but there's a a joining together of the positive and negative that actually starts to stabilize um or create earth and earth is really just a a function of um positive and negative coming together to stabilize into a a singular form rather than something that's um as as you go up the scale into you know from liquids to plasmas and things like that then that that is not so the the neutrality of it becomes less and less but um things tend to fall down as such because mm-hmm. of their neutrality and because of their you know buoyancy and density plays a role after that but um yeah, we're very similar. Earth is obviously an anagram for heart and those sort of mm-hmm. things as well. So there is this, um, when you say neutrality, it's really the positive and negative coming together. So it's really that um, um, sort of mercurial idea comes into play again right. um, with the Earth. Yeah. So is there have- any aspect of electricity, as you understand it, that could actually generate earth beneath our feet like cause soil to manifest from some kind of dynamic going on between the the upper and the lower uh there's electrocrystallization and that's basically where you're creating um you know earth or crystals and earth is is essentially just a crystal as far as I'm concerned, um, just broken down and weathered in a sense but um the same sort of things um can grow with, um, I think they're like kids' toys and things where you'll have, um, put it in salt water and then there'll be a, a crystal that grows out of it. So, um, basically, that's that's how I think the earth came about. You know, you got the four elements functioning, working on something, and then you got, um, you know, that, that crystal. So, like, that's why the appears. ancients are giving us the idea of the primordial waters. And out of that, so Earth is secondary to those primordial waters, yeah. Hmm. Topher, how does this <laughs> how does this maybe relate to the Nazi esoteric cosmology? They believe we are like essentially in Swiss cheese. So they saw space as solid. Um and I, 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 I dig what they're talking about because it, it's, it takes me all the way back to my Vedanta Advaita roots. So they essentially said what we think of as space 
isn't it's it, everything's been inverted and this has been by the way the only working model of a true plasma pulse engine is is produced by a company called Kepe Motor in Brazil and their prime engineer and scientist Nor, Norberto Kepe he actually wrote a treatise in the in the 70s and it was called disinverted physics like he wrote oh, it's awesome like i i got that like 12 years ago and it completely changed my my mind but all we know when it comes to being an atomist is they they tell us we live in a billiard ball universe that the earth is solid it's a planetary body and it's floating in infinite vacuum yada 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 the nazis had it the opposite where we live is actually the space that's the bubble it's like swiss cheese and space is solid it's it's pure potential and so to them if it's pure potential it's whole this is the potentiated state so it's a lower valence it's a lower octave of creation itself like if I'm looking at something, yeah, it, it's it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's created, but it's not the whole. Anything that's temporal is temporary, so therefore it's not real. So when you're in the bubble, like when you're having experience and having a, a continuity, a, a temporal existence, that is just the the finited aspect of your infinite self. So in these little bubbles that there are, um, you have different dimensions, you have different, maybe you have different planes of existence, who knows. But they were pretty convinced by the late 30s that the nuclear way of looking at things was completely moronic. And they got into vibrational technology where vibration is location. Your frequency is your location. And I would got really switched on when I was reading their work because I knew a Raja Yogi that had cities. Like he had siddhas. He had four siddhas or cities. I don't know how you guys pronounce it. But he could control the weather. He could change the state of matter. He could levitate and he could bilocate. And I witnessed all of it. And I witnessed all of it before I even had a context for what it was. So it wasn't a projection from me. It was literally like, what the F is going on here? Like what is going on? And I've had, I know, man, I've had a spontaneous bilocation experience myself. So, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I don't rule that out at all. Yeah. So in that, like, I was like, there's something more to this whole thing going on. And I was in college when I first experienced it. So I was like, there's some, this, this place is wacky. And so from the Raja Yoga perspective, they literally, that's one of their tenants as a Raja Yogi is, you, yeah, your frequency is your location. Like if you were standing on the sun, you'd be plasma. Like <laughs> you'd be the frequency of plasma. So like 
it made sense to me the second I was reading the Nazi stuff. And the only reason why I was reading the Nazi stuff was. And you could also look at it like a, a vibrating string on an instrument that the vibration at one length range of the string is one frequency, you know, like. Mm-hmm. You're saying if you're on the sun, you're going to be the frequency of plasma. <laughs> you're going to be that plasma. You know, that would be like your, that would be a certain note on the fretboard. Right. No matter what, the vibration in that part of the fretboard is this thing in a way. But, and it's, I all, know- but it's all on one mono chord also. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is like all of our bodies are different. Like we all share similar biology, maybe. But the whole thing that I see is that none of us are equal. We're all different. We're all unique. We're all living. I will never, no matter how much I try to know somebody else's experience, I cannot know in any way, any, like, even if they like detail, write it and then like try and tell me, I cannot know what somebody else is experiencing. So all my Raja Yoga roots are very much like, the center, the axis muni, your shashumna, that which connects you to your creator, your divine tether, is literally that low pressure zone. It's the center, the eye of the tornado that comes down. And then all action within the bubble of space that's been provided for the soul to experience temporality, that's what we're in. And then that tether goes to the holy, the fully potentiated state, which they saw as solid. And their whole thing was, if you really want to travel efficiently, all you do is change your frequency. And then that's why they developed the Nazi bell. Because the whole Nazi bell thing was about spinning mercury as you as you brought up very 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 fast with a massive 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 ground current i think they're using some of tesla stuff with the telluric currents well if you use magnetism mercury spins itself yeah i have no idea how they did it but they had literally the world's largest electromagnets ever made in that thing like yeah you can use natural magnets near a strong enough like just a horseshoe magnet right near mercury mm-hmm. close enough to mercury and the mercury if you have it in like a tube shaped container mm-hmm. it will whip around that thing and spin <laughs> and it will light up too so imagine if instead you had some kind of like technological electromagnetic generator device something big like an industrial like those things that they use to pick up cars at the junkyard They did have that. That's what I'm saying. They had these massive like copper. I don't even know what gauge you would call it. They were electromagnet coils that were absolutely magnificently large that were, er they were actually in the, in the struts that held the, the monorail thing up in the sky. It's not, it wasn't that big of a structure, but imagine in the thirties looking at this, it was like very futuristic, but it was like this ring. Once again, we're talking about rings one ring to rule them all. <laughs> they had this ring and then they had these, I forget whether it had three or four legs, but within those legs, they had these huge, huge copper, you know, Venus metal going down into the ground and these coils 
huge coils that were buried. I I've, I read some accounts up to six stories down into the ground. So that's 60 feet. That's a massive differential. <laughs> and, I, you know, I've said before that like the earth is, is similar to a um, galvanic pile or a um, voltaic pile, sorry. And also like it acts as a capacitor. Right. Because that's what a, um, that's what a salt bridge does in a galvanic cell. If you don't have the salt bridge there, um, it, you take it out. What, it, what happens is it goes to equilibrium too fast. It just burns itself out. Mm-hmm. But then we, when you have the earth in the, in the way or the salt bridge in the way, it acts as a, a capacitor or a, um, a limiter on the whole cell. So it's actually able to generate that electricity over time. And I think the same thing is occurring in our in our world. But if they're diving down into the ground, like you say, uh, they're increasing potential uh, mm-hmm. massively. You know, yeah. So I I think they were just they were spinning that 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 whatever that amalgam of mercury was up, and they figured out how to teleport. And then, ooh, we we have the story of what, what what World War II is. But I've read a bunch of Joseph Farrell's books, and he was talking. He believed in the whole nuclear bomb thing, and I I have a history with that too, Elsie. Um, like my my grandfather was a nuclear physicist. That not one day, like a nuclear physicist that actually worked for the U.S. military. And not one day did he ever work on a so-called bomb or missile deterrent system or anything. So I have a, I have a very unique, I guess it's not so unique anymore, but um, they're like what, what we've been told about nuclear stuff isn't what isn't the truth. hundred percent. Yeah. So Yeah. I think the the Germans, the maybe it wasn't even the whole German military. Who knows? You know how things get bifurcated. Um, there was a sect of the 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 scientists that figured out how to efficiently transport themselves, and then whatever commenced commenced. Well, that that is how you create um, levitation as well is via basically your metals and. Um, creating a charge on the surface of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people can do it at home just with like um, a bit of PVC pipe and some aluminium foil rolled up into little balls and you'll get them to float around and levitate. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same sort of thing could have been occurring when they were doing that as well. Um, if you're saying they've got that much power to actually generate <laughs> mm-hmm. that much um, outside electricity on it, then it will levitate, no worries, transport, no worries. Yeah, what I found so interesting about it was the fact that it just corresponded so much to the Raja Yoga that I had been exposed to. And then, like, you know, we all grew up with, like, the Indiana Jones movies and Spielberg just putting it right out there in front of you, like how infatuated the Nazis were with everything India. And uh, so it made a lot of sense to me when I started reading this stuff. I was like, huh. Yeah. This wasn't alien to them at all. Like this wasn't, I bet you they weren't even surprised. And who even knows, who even knows what, what tech, what antiquitech, like some of the, the firebomb cities that, that were in Germany, like Dresden, like you look at the old pictures at Dresden, 
I mean, two thirds of those buildings must have had mercury balls up in their up in their steeples or oh, spires, whatever you would call them. Like yeah. I'm I'm totally of the opinion that the Antiquitech that was eviscerated in World War Two was just a huge coup of the energy cartel saying, no, 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 no. We're going to be petrochemical yeah. all the way. Yeah. And uh, Dresden, they bombed Dresden for extra credit. Like the war was over and they right. just didn't, they just didn't want those bombs to expire. So they just dumped them. And that is, uh, that city was amazing before that happened. It was a huge, huge reset. Yeah. The, um, yeah, well, I, was, I was just thinking before, like, yeah, this the mercury thing is really um, a deep rabbit hole, isn't it? Once you start understanding what it does, how it operates, um, as well as, yeah, that antiquitech and how that operates. I'm still no sort of further with my ideas on it um, rather than – I just think it's – we have a lot more to learn to to figure out what they were actually doing and how they were putting it together. But I do know that um, people have done experiments with mercury that um, just some are really fascinating. Um, there's one where my friend Zach he he basically had a had a friend and he was hooked it up to a radio. He basically had a, a one of those mercury light bulbs hooked it up into an antenna and was able to receive huge amounts of. Um, mm stations just from adding that mercury component into it um there's other things that mercury uh there's been studies on it where you've had a cathode and anode um at one end of a, a maze and it's been able to actually find its way through the maze um rather than something that would be in a, a straight line Oh, wow. um, the Indians were able to harden it up using salt and they'd eat it and cakes um, and also have the little sort of uh, statue type things. And they were saying, well, it's for communication, you know, mind, mental abilities and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, With silver, uh, if you put uh, mercury in uh, nitrate, you can grow silver crystals on it. Um, if you put it into high voltage, you, you can create, um, gold out of mercury. Um, so some of these sort of things have led me to believe that, um, mercury is in our atmosphere, goes up in, and he's able to amalgamate, um, and in the atmosphere and create the planet. So that's how one of the, um, theories that I, I put forth is that Mercury is actually the creator of the um, the planets via its uh, ability to amalgamate um, and create gold, silver, and all these other the metals, basically. When you say so, create the planets, do you mean like the sonoluminescent sparkly thing in the in the firmament? Like when you say planets, what do you mean? The the wandering stars, if you like, or the luminaries, um, sun. Moon. Those I understand. I understand that aspect of it, but when you say what what are planets to you? Metals. Okay. Liquid metal, right? Um, not necessarily. No. Okay. Let's keep going on this. Let's hash out, you know, some possibilities of what these luminaries are. I like this. I would, so, I, would love, I would love to hear what you what your your cosmology is. So basically, um, 
to, to simplify, the um, the moon is acting as the anode, the sun is acting as the, the cathode, and so there's a communication that exists between them. And you see that the, the anode in a battery will actually start to break down um, and you'll see that same sort of pitting and things that occurs with the moon as well. So it's it's the breaking down and then most the energy is moving towards uh, the sun from the anode to the cathode. Um, and so there's basically an electrochemical uh, operation that's occurring with nitrates and um, uh, hydrochloric acids. So, and then these are generated from natural reactions and elements within our atmosphere. And a lot of it's created, uh, generated by the sun as it moves over the oceans is lifting up and refining um, that atmospheric electrolyte. So that's where the, basically the connection comes from. It's, it's cycling around. Mm-hmm. And the, the other component of this is um, the dome that we're in is um, basically a, is a natural creation from temperature. So as the, the as you get further from the sun, then things cool down and then it's like air becomes solid and you get what's known as like um solid oxygen, solid air. And with those with that solid oxygen, then you're basically talking about uh supercapacitors and, and all those sort of um interesting things that happen when you get that uh, um, shell. It's it's a a reflective shell of energy in a sense because it uh, um, reflects magnetism, reflects um, electrical energy. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, sort of the the basis of um, what I've sort of been researching. Mm -hmm. Um, I do a lot more on my YouTube channel. So when you look at this combination of ideas about frequency being location and the pleroma aspect being kind of like a solid, you know, the the pure potential being something that we're a bubble within in terms of our realm. We're kind of like a bubble within the pure potentiation of a particular outcome that is not the all everything, everything all at once type idea. So this lends a lot of maybe context to the idea that we're in a creation, like what Lucas is describing about the firmament and, you know, um, solid oxygen and it, how it acts as a capacitor that this realm in terms of the way it is structured, the physical, is itself a technology, like a technological, you could call it like technology means art, but that it's like skillfully or artfully manifest in a particular way. It's not just chaos in a, you know, it's got some order and some seemingly some intent behind the structure to give it a particular equilibrium in perpetuity. Right. Well, it's yeah, hundred percent. But it's it's our technology basically comes from the stars or from understanding um, where we are, and so it, it's just a, a matter of you know putting those pieces together. Say if you're looking at a vacuum tube, where you're you're looking at um, a low pressure system and you're looking at a cathode and anode in um, that low pressure system with maybe a little bit of salts in there, 
and there you have a communication device. It's it's um, it's a switch. So uh, those that is a direct relationship to what I think is going on with up above us as well. Is that there's a a communication via um, you know that low pressure system. Mm-hmm. So technology is a derivative of understanding our world. I have, uh, I want to throw this out there. Me and Gabriel were having this conversation last night about basically I was throwing out the idea of what if technology or human evolution past the point of being in sort of a homeostatic equilibrium with nature, right? This idea of hunter gatherers and unchanging, untouched indigenous tribes that did things the exact same way for millennia upon millennia until one day all of a sudden like agriculture came and new ideas about human life and ownership and property and language and all these things started to arise that step by step (laughs) led us to here where we're talking to each other on computers you know from mile hundreds and thousands of miles apart and basically the idea was that you know it's just one of those big what ifs but what if what if technology or what if imagination is basically mm, find the best way to put this. What if you have to have the star or constellation language for imagination? Like what if before humans over however long it took figured out what was going on in the sky clock in terms of a story, the astro logos, what if like before that there wasn't really invention? <laughs> what if you act, cause what happens with the priest class, the astronomer priests over time, over history, they look at that story that they've come up with about the constellations. And then they put that in context with the languages that exist with mathematics, with other languages. And they look at the interplay and the wordplay and the puns and all the different things hiding under the surface level of meaning. And that's where they come up with crazy myth. What seems like crazy myth mythology, like why would Samson kill a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass? You know, like that is so completely out there, you know, it's like, a com- so it seems so random, but when you learn more about the Lumashi or the constellation writing, you find out that that has to do with a pun on a pun on a wordplay. Uh, relating to like Sumerian or Akkadian languages, how one word or one vowel sound or syllable sound can mean three different things. And so they're combining, you know, multiple dimensions of meaning together to derive Samson killed a thousand men with a jawbone of an ass. And so that's what I'm trying to get at is like this interplay and this priestly pun craft that is revolving around what's revolving above is also sort of the mother of invention. And the, maybe the mother of monsters as well. <laughs> and my question is like, I get like, this is a big roundabout question, big kind of stoner sounding thought, but <laughs> you know, what, what if, or what, what do we think about the idea that we actually, the, the capacity to imagine and invent is itself derived from the sky clock in terms of how we derive like is all science actually astro theological? Like 
was there really anything scientific that was ever discovered that was truly gnosis about how the world works or an invention that's in harmony with nature that didn't come from understanding some, some understanding or wisdom derived from the, uh, the stars. Right. Is that, is this making sense? I'm, Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the two forms of Freemasonry operative and uh, speculative that seems to maybe be you know what chance is talking about the speculative having to do with you know mastering a language to describe how things work and then giving it to giving us the ability to speculate on how to invent things uh, or how to apply what we have learned to speak Well, when I look at the galvanic cell, when I started looking at it, what I was noticing is that it was showing me, um, you know, when you look at an anode and a cathode and you look at the simplest form of a battery, basically, which is two electrolytes and um, a a boundary between them. And, you know, this is same as like what your heart is. It's you've got two different blood types and then you've got a boundary between them. It's... um, These all just seem like fractals of the same sort of process Mm. to me. And so once you learn about one thing, um, and this is where I sort of bang on about the Trinity a fair bit because it basically is a magnet. (laughs) Um, You know, it has a polarity and then a center point, which is the neutral point between the two. Um, So essentially, you know, when you're looking at the, whether it's the heavens, it's just a, a, you know, they're, they're a, a fractal of it all. So when you look at one thing that, especially when it functions, and that's why I always sort of come back to these things is because it's functional, it works. You can't say a, a battery doesn't work because it does. We know it does. It just has these four elements put together with a, three chemicals. And then all, all of a sudden you've got power. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's what I, that's always come back to that that functionality. Uh, L- Lucas, you gotta look into Bedini, man. You're gonna freak out, especially if you're into crystals and galvanic cells and the type of energy that really charges electrolytes well. Because we we've, mm. we've been taught a load of BS when it comes to um, what current is, what ampage is, what, what, uh, voltage is we've been given. I feel like you're about to elaborate on this, but this is one of the things I intended for the talk is like, what's the BS and what's a more accurate description of electricity. So, you know, go go off on this, you know, you're you're going to love this. So my personal hero, Schauberger, what his hundred questions to science, you know, he was like, well, your model for electricity is, makes no sense you know they had just started to pitch the electron model and he's like there's no way electricity can be a particle connected to another particle connected to another particle he goes electricity is temperature differential yeah and so what you need to understand is you have to take a deep dive into what is temperature because when you say temperature to people, they just think of heat and cold. But when you really like start to think of the phenomenology of what temperature is, it's varying degrees of intensity. So once again, we're going into pressure gradients. 
and we're going to into pressure gradients with a, a more solid medium and a less solid medium. And the, the, the boundary layer, as you would say, like as the, the example that you just brought up is where you get, I, for lack of a better word, I just call it cavitation. This is where mother nature, whatever this, this, <laughs> dielectrical inertial plane is says okay whenever there's going to be a gap i'm going to fill it nature abhors a vacuum so you can do this within systems and the system will collapse into itself what we see and call electricity that's what it does. It's like, no, there's a gap there. I'm going to fill it. Tink. And it does it. And depending the, when you do this, when you engineer this, have any of you guys seen uh, David LaPointe's work? No, but what this is making me think about is how somebody described, I heard a description of the germination of a seed, basically causing a spark because of like temperature difference of how it was dry when it got buried and then it rained and it got wet and there's like a pre a pressure and temperature differential that causes a cavitation spark mm -hmm. and that the seed uses that spark as what kicks off its biological process and then once it's sparked you know like starting an engine it goes from there it's pure it's pure yin it's pure receptivity whenever the pure yin is created anywhere in nature whether it's through a mechanical system or a natural system where you have an area where you have ultra receptivity due to lack of let's just say resistance boom it gets filled one way or another gets filled. Nature abhors a vacuum. In, in this realm, in this etheric realm that we live in, there is no such thing as emptiness. Like it doesn't happen. So all these guys I studied, their whole thing was. So if you hey, don't have resistance to evil, you'll get filled with it. <laughs> no, that's that's gay. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> no, it's not like that. Like, oh, don't think of yellow, don't think of yellow. No, it's it's how should I say this? I'm not being too eloquent. Um the engineers that I've studied, their whole thing is how do I actually create a vessel that will control how nature collapses the field inside the vessel? So I brought up David LaPointe and David LaPointe's whole thing, like with the primer fields, you guys have to watch the primer fields. It got released like nine years ago. And like now, of course, his technology has been, you know, bought up by some billionaire. But his whole thing was he created a point source light by using magnetic fields through an oscillatory circuit within a vacuum. And he was the first person to create all the full spectrum of light that we get from the sun in, in like what looks like a domed, like a dome. It would be like this vessel, but domed and about this big. And 
it has all of the spectrum of light, visible light. It had never been created before by humans with very little electrical charge. So he had a cathode on one side, anode on another side. Then he was actually the cathode and anode like this. And then he had magnetic fields around this. And he would, he would rotate the magnetic fields to change how the plasma was presenting. But what he was showing was, is he had these very specific mag- magnet arrays that were convex curves that caused a plasma situation where when it was getting hit with the voltage, then that plasma, because that plasma was being condensed by the magnetic fields, would become sonoluminescent, would actually emit light. And he's, he's found he could emit sound, he could emit light, he could pretty much emit whatever he wants to emit from this, depending on the frequency, the voltage, and the shape of these, of these uh, magnet arrays. So. Um, and, you know, Schauberger was doing the same thing pneumatically. Tesla was doing it electrically. Their whole thing is, is biomimic. Mother Nature wants to give, wants to fill the gap. She hates emptiness. She doesn't allow it. So Schauberger was doing it all pneumatically. He figured out these ingenious ways with gaseous mediums to like actually truncate the flow at very specific frequencies, where then when the cavitation pulse would come in, it would increase the speed to a point where he was always getting over unity with his with his rotations. So it's all in my mind, in my simplified caveman dome building mind, it's all about how can I engineer the space, the ambiance <laughs> in a way that allows nature to collapse, collapse the field in a, uh, how should I say it? Um, in an additive way, not in a destructive way. The so, model yeah, that would be a great way to transition into talking about dome structures and uh, other geometries maybe, but what you're describing with the cavitation phenomenon, this is how, some fish can swim up a waterfall, right? This yeah. is what vortex dynamics are really uh, applicable to. Well, I, I, I mean, I've seen that, but I've also like plumbed houses. <laughs> I've also been in areas where cavitation like blew out pipes, pipes that were rated at like, you know, 400 PSI. And there's no way you could have 400 PSI in those pipes. So how the hell did those pipes, you know, go bad? And they went bad because it wasn't a pressure pushing out. It was something pulling it in, sucking it into the center. And so I've built probably two dozen ram pumps. Have you guys ever heard of a ram pump? Yep. So there, there, there is. Sorry, have you heard of that? Um, the there was a guy building a cavitation sort of pump and it was basically a piston and it had a heap of uh, little divots in the end of the piston. And as it went down into the water and spun around, it was um, creating those cavitations a little Mm -hmm. bit like, um, uh, anyway, he was basically getting, producing heat and steam and getting over unity that way or high efficiency. Well, it totally makes sense to me. Totally makes sense to me. There was a there was an Australian gentleman that in World War II created something that looked like a little bell, and he would cavitate this bell, and it would create 
boiling water without any heat. Mm-hmm. So he, he was creating steam engines this way with no heat. So he was way over unity. It's just the way nature does it. She's always, our hearts are not pumps. Our hearts are actually like uh, Dr. Thomas Cowan's work. And you can see like they can roll your heart out like it's this long piece of Lomito steak. And they fold it into seven folds. It's a very specific way that they fold the muscle. And then you end up having the, the four chambers and then the aortic arch. And they show that the cavitation that occurs in the aortic arch is actually from the temperature differential from your extremities to your core to your core temperature. Wow, those are very sacred numbers, right, Chance? The seven to the four and an archway. And that gives you, yeah, that gives you G to D. That's pretty and badass. Also, the seven and the four both are theosophical additions back to one. So, so that I don't be, know what I don't know what that stuff means. Tell me. So, like one plus two plus three plus four equals ten, and if you do the same thing, add all the digits between one and seven. You get 28, which is a, a 10, 2 plus 8. Okay. And uh, basically every three numbers for infinity reduce back to one like that. So the number line is sort of like saying 1, 2, 3, 1, 5, 6, 1, 8, 9, 1, 11, 12, 1. You know, and then it goes on and on. It's like literally Trinity's forever, <laughs> in a sense. Always returning back to oneness after the three. And That's the so four, cool. The four and the seven are are like that. Uh, the first two that demonstrate that pattern in you know the nine digits that we have because everything past nine is sort of like a repeat. Yeah, and, and uh, the aortic arch too is the sacred arc. Like that was just a very magical phrase that you just described the anatomy with. Yeah, steeped with magical implication. I would like to internalize this information for sure about the cavitation that the heart creates as it's like a vortex technology a better way to say it is it doesn't it's cavitated that's the best way to look at it when you build a cavitation pump the pump isn't creating the cavitation it gets cavitated it's a very odd thing it's actually your input energy that allows the cavitation to start the pump itself. It's just reacting to the condition that you set in motion. And then once it's set in motion, it just does it. (laughs) It will do it. I mean, as long as it's built well, it will do it indefinitely. So you said something interesting, this hate differential between the extremities and the heart. Um, I've made the correlation between the oceans um, and our blood. And so when you said that, I immediately thought, well, you've got an outer cooler ring um, Mm -hmm. that we're in and then you've got the internal. And there is like that thermohaline circulation that occurs as well. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's um, basically the the world uh, conveyor belt of the oceans that moves around and it seems to have this correspondence between um, nitrates and sodium. So there's always this sort of polarity going on between the two salts uh, of nitrates and sodiums. Um, so 
any of this. When you when you said that, I was like immediately thought of um, this differential in heat that occurs from, you know, say the midsection of where the sun moves around the tropics mm-hmm. and the outer ring. So yeah, it, it it's a corollary. And it's also like with men and women, like the whole feminine, like the whole yin yang thing, like the, the energy of the majority of the men, because I'm very yang, I have a lot of fire, I have a lot of uh, rajasic fire energy in me. So when I massage men, more men have that rajasic fire, positive polarity pushing out energy. So when I work on uh, the male polarity, I'm like the overall male polarity. I can feel resistance in the field because it's two Norse touching each other. Where when I work on a woman, if she's heterosexual, the, the yin energy is there and it's actually pulling my energy into her. The, the negative component, the receptive component, the cooling component, the, the, the ultimate, it, it actually draws me in. So it's, a, it's, or my energetics, I should say. So it, it's a completely different thing. And sometimes you get a very yang-based woman and sometimes you get a very yin-based man. But I just see this temperature differential, yin-yang thing, light, dark, you know, it's so obvious <laughs> i mean it, it's everywhere and it's very natural and it, it creates the dynamic disequilibrium and that is something i i, I got a lot from Schauberger's work is that in nature you don't have equilibrium if you have equilibrium you have death uh in in a true symbiotic relationship you have dynamic disequilibrium where you will always have just like, you know, Floyd sweet Floyd sweet sweets work with the magnets is like every magnet pole has both the yin and the yang, but one is dominant. It's the same thing in dynamic disequilibrium. You'll have both present, but one is dominant. It doesn't mean the other one isn't there. And then sometimes the other one will dominate. And it's very cyclical thing. I, I it's uh it keeps everything in motion. Yeah, and the the other thing when you're explaining hot and cold, there is the the thermogalvanic cell, which is basically based on that. So you have two uh, an anode and cathode, and all you have to do is heat one side of it, mm-hmm. um, and you'll get a transfer of electricity. So it's really, really is that simple. And when you put that in context of sun and moon, well, you've got the sun is hot and moon is cooler than the sun. So you, you automatically get a transfer of energy that happens between them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on the, <laughs> there was a comment from Andrea earlier and she was wondering if we could relate what you've been talking about. I think relating to cavitation and <laughs> can, can we possibly relate that to biological cell reproduction is what she was wondering. I'm, I'm getting absolutely like my mind is being pulverized by Dr. Cowan and Dr. Um, I got to have, I got to have Cowan on. 
and I for Dr. Andy Kaufman, they're they're essentially rewriting my mind when it comes to what our biology is. Finally, all the years of me doing myofascial release on people now make sense with what they're saying. So I think I think Kaufman's going to be at at Music and Sky, maybe. Oh man, I I I need. I have to. access to both of those guys on Telegram. I really need to get into their work more. Yeah, I've talked to Dr. Cowan a couple of times. I haven't talked to Kaufman yet, but essentially, if I'm understanding what they're saying, like the majority of what we've been told about cellular biology is absolute BS. Like the the whole model that we've been given that, you know, this cell is here and this cell is there and, you know, blah, 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 blah. There was a reason why, like from 2005 to 2015, like one of the most dangerous occupations in the world was to be a cellular biologist. And it's because what they were figuring out was the majority of cells are pleomorphic. The majority of our cells are in constant communication and the, the external part of the cell, the outside of the cell, is actually what writes the, the nucleus. The nucleus... Oh, like, I say pleomorphic, like basically adaptive, could be one thing or another thing. Pretty much all of them are adaptive. So this actually ties in like crazy and this is probably why you wanted to talk to powers because matt powers is describing seeing this going on with things like the bacterial world how well, like I, that's why I e coli is like a universal chassis to become anything that the environment might need it to com- become for some side, sort of uh balancing or cleanup i have to geek out with them because i make biochar like my company's called bio charisma biocharisma I've composted everything in every part of the world. (laughs) And I can tell you, there's no fucking way that some of these bugs come out of this compost that got into some of these vessels I've created. Meaning. Yeah, they mean they appear out of nowhere. They appear out of nowhere. The conditions create the being. That's why, like, you can have the, like, they, you change the conditions in the desert and then all these animals just show up. We live in a hologram, man. Like, so this that thing- means nothing we've ever been scared about climate change or extinction events or any of that. None of it no. is as described. No. And the biodiversity of nature is as accessible as our perceptual bandwidth when not limited by fear. And lack mentality. Basically. When you're not limited by fear, you create the vessel of absolute abundance. It's all an offer. It's all an offer. It's, it's all, all an, offer. an offer. This is what we were talking about last night, too, Gabriel. Yeah. Everything fear is an offer. And like the real, <laughs> the reality is when you're in the jurisdiction with your creator, what that means is that you. Uh, you understand that the I am force in the unlimited in the pure potential potential unpotentiated is the same consciousness that is you. <laughs> it's just like, you know, then all of a sudden there's actually nothing that could be a threat, nothing that could be a fear other than your own self-deception. Yeah. And, and also like there's subconscious things that we carry from our, from our apparent, genetic line and people that we care about 
like uh, what I've noticed in the in the body working world is emotions flow downstream. So let's say you have a, a daughter and a mother and the daughter is much more sensitive and open to things and the mother won't look at her shit. The daughter will present all the mother's shit and none of it's hers. Because she has the genetic link, she has the energetic link. She actually has in she's in phase because she comes from a similar line. She lived watching. But what about this too? I have had experience with clients where we sort out energy inherited from one of the parents Mm -hmm. for them on the biofield level. And their parent involved with this will contact them within days and be clear and and they'll rectify the situation. Sometimes parents that they haven't spoken to for years. Absolutely. We clear it, it, it flows downstream but it can be cleared from downstream and it affects upstream, so to speak. Absolutely. And it can be retrocausal, <laughs> which gets really freaky. So then whenever, <laughs> you know, woo woo new age people talk about like healing your ancestral line, you actually are healing your ancestral line potentially. If you, if you fix I mean, trauma well, that's inherited generationally. In reality, why else are we here? Like there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the plasma balls. There's nothing new in the electrolyte. None of us are doing anything that's unique or special or anything. We are literally just here to heal our family. We're just here to heal. That's all it is. Like our our soul depotentiated from the whole. We're this in is a- where you get the mythology of original sin of Adam we're, and Eve. Because well, if what you're describing, this is sort of a logical but it's a more refined logic that the mystery traditions actually started out with before getting all off into you know corruption (laughs) but like this is a logical thing that you can reason out with enough time and enough uh, generations of philosophers and sky clock study is that you realize that basically what you just said is is accurate that the purpose of life it, it your spirit goes on you're not you know everything is recycled or reused mm-hmm. there's not an end <laughs> everything comes back in in its season and that we're sort of working with the first time somebody lived incorrectly <laughs> started the chain reaction of you could call it kind of like metaphorically entropy mm-hmm. or decay and yeah. we are we are at the a long end of that that chain with the possibility of backtracking or continuing the fall well it's just a product of polarity in my view um as soon as you have polarity you're going to have the gradient between them and you can exist on any of that potential gradient so Mm -hmm. um that allows for the freedom doesn't it yeah that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to ask you, Chance. Hey, Mr. Texter Chance. No, I'm you- looking up I'm looking up a <laughs> quote from Higgins, uh, Godfrey Higgins in Anacalypsis about this very thing from the chapter Eternity of Matter and Renewal of Worlds. <laughs> but ask me ask away. Uh, maybe I'll find this when, quote later. When you're reading miasms in people's fields with with 
the work that you do, do they come through consistently? Like what I mean by that is when you're dealing with with somebody carrying the burden from, let's just say, a family line. Do you have you had the chance or have you do you have enough experience to know that like when you're reading a miasm in their in their bioenergetic field, it presents the same way all the time? Presents the same way all the time. I'm going to answer this the way I think what you mean. But if this doesn't answer your question, then help me out elaborate here. But for me, it's like. It started out when I got into it being a varied experience and there's still some variety and I'd be listening and trying to hear like a distortion in the tone or for the fork to run out more quickly, things along those lines. And I would be interpreting all those things the best of my ability and intuitively. But eventually I got to the point where I was able to make sort of the agreement with my body that every time I would tell it what I'm looking for. And then when I found what I was looking for, my body would tell me with like a pressure differential, a pressure shift in my eardrums that would cause my ears to pop. And sometimes the clicking is deeper in my head, but that's how it works now. Every time, if I, whether I'm looking for the outer boundary of their energy field or I'm looking for my miasms, as you say, miasma, as you're talking about uh, distortions. Same thing will happen. So that's like my measurement ability is in the feeling of a pressure change, pressure shift in my ears that causes them to pop. Not unlike when you're on a plane, but not painful and -hmm. it doesn't affect my hearing. So in that sense, yeah, it's pretty much the same way every time, no matter what (laughs) I'm looking for, I get the, you know, the, it's like a metal detector, metal detector beeps for metal. (laughs) That's how it works. I have that in my ears, in my head for, uh, dense or stagnant stock chi or energy or barriers is a better way of putting it because it also applies to the outer edge of the, the energy field, like the plasma membrane. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I'm still sometimes all getting information from the tone of the fork too. That might give me a clue as well, but most probably biofield tuners are going off of the sound itself, like the pitch changes and the how fast it runs out or how long it rings out. And for me, I pretty much get rid of most of that guesswork by just the, my head change mm-hmm. telling me what's up. Is that, so that, that answered your question. Well, in a way it did. I I guess I can ask the question better. So when I use the term miasm, just so we're we're using the same grammar, uh, the way I was taught to use that word is miasm is a contraindication that somebody's carrying that they didn't auto-generate. Like it actually came from a loved one or a a family. Okay. So those whenever it comes from like implanted from a family member, so to speak, uh, I'm usually able to, I usually just know (laughs) it's one of those things where it's hard to say, but like when I find the distortion in their energy field, if it is their own trauma, their own stuff, or it's a miasm, I have some clue about what it feels like. And I have some clue about the age it happened based on where does that the up, down and the left, right and the front back those axes of the 
the bubble space around them will tell me something specific. So, you know, if I run into at the solar plexus level, a feeling that is from about, you know, 11 years old (laughs) and it's on the, the front left of the person, then it's going to tell me that at that age, for, for whatever reason, they took on the belief about themselves that they were absolutely powerless or their will could not affect change or that they had willpower problems and other clues that like, I'll have maybe a lot of clues from how I worked on them up to that point that will give me more of a specific feeling or intuition about exactly what it means. But that's like the range of what things in that area could mean. And if it's happening at about 11 years old, well, probably it was a parent then (laughs) and probably it was their mother Mm -hmm. because that turns out to be the, uh, the left side relates to mother, but also for whatever reason, we get our sense of power or powerlessness more or less put into us by our mother. And you'll notice this, that, you know, it's common for, (laughs) for moms to be like, Oh, don't do that. You'll get hurt or you can't do this or that'll never work. Or, you know, they pro they throw powerlessness out like crazy (laughs) moms do. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes like if uh, feminized dads do as well, but Mm -hmm. that's, more or less, we more or less of a mother thing. We can learn powerlessness from the father. And it's a little bit different though, because it's more on the, it's more of a active powerlessness, like anger. <laughs> Whereas on the mother side, it's more of a passive powerlessness in like actual passivity. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, because of those metrics, you know, that age specifically, that's going to give me a clue that it was, put on them from somebody else more than self-inflicted. Whereas there's other places in the biofield where I, I just know, basically like I can kind of guess. And then there's certain areas in the biofield that are specifically ancestral rivers of energy. There's mm-hmm. like a, a vertical column on the left and right side. It's a pretty thin spot, but it's like the ancestral river. And sometimes when you hit that spot, you uh, you get a big hit. <laughs> and if you don't know th- what that spot is, you might assume, oh, this is something that happened to you about one third of your life ago, depending on their age. But it also might be ancestral river, which means a repeated trauma program from many generations over and over again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it depends. It depends, but I can, I usually get it on an intuitive level to know whether it's self-inflicted or inherited. And sometimes there's overlap in that as well. In, um, in kinesiology, there's, uh, that I studied, there's the same process is called surrogation. Um, and you can basically muscle test it through and you can pick the, where you want to go in that, um, who it is, all that sort of stuff, just through muscle testing. Um, so the same sort of occurrence does, well, the same sort of thing happens in this modality as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, go ahead, Chance. Um, well, basically, like, the body knows everything, and it's a matter of getting a language that you can talk yeah. to the body through. Kinesiology is a good language. Biofield anatomy mm-hmm. works as a language. It's an intellectual intellectual scaffolding through which your body can signal you things that it already knows. Right? Oh man. 
All right. This is this is wild. So kinesiology is like yes or no questions, right? Yep. And I'm thinking very much, Topher, this is an amazing question, man. I'm, I mean, the timing of it is amazing. It really, it overlaps with some of what we're doing on the Dr. Strange uh, work that we just finished last night. Um, uh, we're talking about uh, a, a specific type of a love spell in the collective right now, having to do with the family. And uh, um, so, I do, so a lot of what is signaling for me, it has a lot to do with Gemini, Germans, brother versus brother, germs, germ warfare, 